This is Speaking of the Arts, Mid-Missouri's only in-depth weekly art show, recorded in the heart of the Midwest, Columbia, Missouri, and broadcast each Thursday evening from 7 till 8 on 89.5 FM, KOPN Columbia. My name is Diana Moxon. It is a theatre, fine art, theatre sandwich on this week's show. Our peaks beyond the footlights take in a comedy satire about Thanksgiving and a comedy drama about strong southern women for which a pack of tissues is advised. While our fine art visit explores a new exhibit in which 20th century masters riff on the theme of love and human connection, including one artist who had an extremely colourful and licentious life. As always, one hour is scant time to complete our three art journeys. So let's head off to Talking Horse Productions for the real history of Thanksgiving. People sometimes ask me if we celebrate Thanksgiving in England and the answer is no. It wasn't something I ever gave much thought to until I came to live in the United States and began to learn that what little I knew about Thanksgiving was the whitewashed sunshine version of an atrocity. So the satirical comedy, The Thanksgiving Play, written by the Suchangu Lakota playwright Larissa Fasthorse, definitely helps to fill in some of the reality behind this allegedly big friendly harvest between the invading separatists, those would be my people, and the indigenous Wampanoag people. And the play is hilarious, really laugh-out-loud funny, as it not only points out the irony of the coincidence of Thanksgiving and Native American Heritage Month being celebrated at the same time, but also pokes fun at the values of woke culture, the complexities of representation, and how well-meaning liberal white people who are trying really hard at being enlightened often just don't get it. As Playbill magazine wrote, in the Thanksgiving play, American history, privilege checking, self-importance and political correctness all collide. Larissa Fasthorse's play premiered off-Broadway in October 2018 and within a year had earned a spot on the top 10 most produced plays across the country. And next spring, the Thanksgiving play returns to New York, this time on Broadway at the Helen Hayes Theatre, where it will be directed by the Tony Award-winning director of Town, Rachel Chavkin, and will make Fast Horse the first female Native American playwright produced on Broadway. But long before it goes on stage in New York, tomorrow night to be exact, it will be at Columbia's Talking Horse Productions for a two-weekend run, directed by my guests, Didi Farris and Mark Baumgartner. Welcome to the show, Didi and Mark. Hello. Hello. There are so many reasons to love this play. It's hilarious. It's a biting satire. It makes fun of white people and theatre people, <laughs> and it imparts some significant information about the reality of that first Thanksgiving. But what was it in particular that made you want to direct it? Let's start with Mark. Well, I mean, when we first read this play, we read it twice in a row, I think, and had tears rolling out of her eyes the whole time we were reading. And I was like, okay, done deal. Let's, we're going to do that one. That's great. That, that was my big impetus for it. It was yeah. just, it's so funny. Dee, Dee, was it the comedy for you? It really ended up being the comedy. 
we wanted to direct a show together. And so we applied to direct two shows. One was this and one was kind of a more dramatic fair. Mm -hmm. And we read this one twice again. We read the first one and it was great. And we read this, this one and it was an easy <laughs> choice after that because we're kind of clowns at heart. <laughs> so... <laughs> Well, the play revolves around a super woke vegan elementary school teacher, her boyfriend, who is also a mostly unemployed actor, but does a show at the farmer's market, an elementary history teacher who desperately wants to write plays and a professional actor from Los Angeles, all of whom are together going to devise a play about Thanksgiving. Thanks to grants from the Native American Heritage Month Awareness Through Art, the Gender Equity in History, the Excellence in Educational Theatre Fellowship, a municipal ground and the Go Girls Scholastic Leadership Mentorship <laughs> Programs. And the setup right there is just hilarious in and of itself. Yeah. <laughs> Mark, tell us a little bit about where it goes from there. Well, Logan, who's the teacher, and she's played by Ella Folkerts, she's kind of on the, uh, on the outs with the uh, school board because she's been producing plays that are probably not appropriate for elementary schools. <laughs> and so this is like her big chance to get back in the good graces. And so she, you know, like you said, she brings in her boyfriend, the history teacher, this actress, and they're all so completely different and have completely different ideas about what this play should be. And I mean, that's kind of the, the heart of the show is like these four conflicting ideas, butting heads. And it's just chaos and hilarity from there on. <laughs> and then the actor from L.A. is Alicia. Uh, she arrives late because her Uber app disappeared and she had to take the bus, which was literally not possible. <laughs> Dee Dee, tell us about Alicia, but especially about the Alicia as you envision her. When I read Alicia, I immediately thought of this very put together, very self-assured woman who is wanting to make a go of being an actor and has had some success in that. And she breezes in just knowing that she's going to add exactly what any show needs. And what we found was that the actor that we ultimately cast, Sarah Jost, she is, she came in with this, she came in with all of the qualities I wanted for Alicia, but she also came in with just the right touch of naivete that it made her so much more enduring, endearing, I should say, than, <laughs> than I pictured. And it was beautiful. And the moment, pretty much the moment she read it, I she had it in my heart and we weren't wrong. <laughs> I can totally see Sarah playing Alicia. She's going to be fantastic at that. Oh, yeah. There are lots of cringy, woke and willfully ignorant moments in the play. And the playwright said that people understand laughing at the white parts when they're poking fun at white people, but they get very uncomfortable when they get closer to the Native American things or showing some of the ways that white people appropriate everything, including their tragedy and pain. But And those are the parts where the Native people laugh the hardest because they're just like, well, that's true. So obviously you haven't performed for any audiences yet. But Mark, I wondered what discussions had come up in rehearsals about that. Well, I mean, funny is funny, and and we know we're not going to – I don't think we're going to offend anybody with this play <laughs> because it, its heart is in the right place, and every line's heart is in the right place. And so, you know, as long as those guys are hitting hitting those notes and not being concerned about who they're going to offend by saying certain things – 
its heart is in the right place. I don't know how to say it other than that. So. <laughs> She also said that her favorite laugh is the one where people start to laugh and then stop themselves as they're not sure if that was a moment they should be laughing at. And given given Talking Horses' predominance of well-meaning white liberals, I can see those moments happening a lot. <laughs> when you're directing a comedy, do you build a little space for laughter into the script? And and if so, Dee Dee, would that be an interesting challenge for this play because you don't quite know when people are going to suddenly stop laughing. Right. All of the actors that we have really, they know where the jokes should land. But, you know, uh, audiences are living, breathing entities. And so we don't um, yeah, the, the simple answer is that, yes, we build laughter into there. In fact, we just had a note about that last night. We had a, a brand new person in the audience who was helping out with some of the tech. They were laughing at spots that it was so delightful to hear and to hear our actors roll with that and understand when they needed to let that land a little harder and when to roll on when the laughter stopped. <laughs> and, you know, that's that's and that's something you try to impart to your actors is like, you know, go. Th- I told him go through the script and look through and know where those laugh lines, where you think the laugh lines are going to be, so you can be prepared for that. And it'll still catch you off guard. I mean, <laughs> you know, it, like, oh yeah, that that was funny. We've been doing this rehearsing for a month and a half, and you kind of forget that. Oh yeah, that's supposed to be funny. <laughs> People are going <laughs> to laugh at that. And the the reason that Larissa Fastos said she wrote the script featuring no Native Americans is because she was so tired of directors telling her that whilst they really liked her plays, they were uncastable as there are no Native Americans to play the roles. And her reply was that there are plenty of Native Americans around. They just don't reveal themselves. And I wonder whether you have reached out to any Native Americans within our own theatre community to ask for their input or their comment. You know, that's a very good question. I We have not. Um, and in fact, I only personally know of one person who identifies as having Native American heritage in their family. And I'm not sure how attached to that heritage they are. It didn't really occur to me to, to consult them. And now I feel bad. <laughs> <laughs> it's still time. You don't open just yet. So you still got time. And then there's also the thought of like, well, I didn't write it. <laughs> You right. know? <laughs> I'm only directing the actors. <laughs> so you're co-directing this play. You are married to each other. And I wonder whether there have been certain scenes that you've had different ideas about or discussions about the overall concept where you've had to give and take a little and find a balance. Yeah, you know, we were actually just discussing this a, a few minutes ago. Mark has a beauty for knowing the broad strokes of something. That's where his expertise lies. And in all of the shows that we've produced together and projects that we've done, he's the broad stroke guy, and I tend to be the fine detail kind of person. And it's a really nice balance that we have. We both would like to get better at the other, but it's working pretty well. So We have one mind. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it isn't the first time you've worked together on things. I mean, you produce films together, so I guess you're used to how the other one thinks. So there I guess there aren't any moments where you just are like, absolutely not. I'm not doing it that way. I'm walking out. We haven't had any of those moments in this show. Now, no. occasionally in producing films, um, Mark tends to be the writer and I tend to shred his scripts up a little bit. <laughs> and there have been a couple of times where he's been like, I put this in for a reason and it's staying. And I'm like, hey, legit, you wrote it. <laughs> 
but yeah, on the, on this show though, I mean, we will have discussions about things and we may not see eye to eye directly, but you know, it's, it's just like a marriage. You just give and take, you know, like <laughs> where, where, where the battle is going to lie. You know, where, what hill am I going to die on on this? And, and we just, we just didn't have any disagree, you know, heavy disagreements on this show at all. No, so it really boils down to, who cares more about this one particular moment? <laughs> Whoever has the strongest feelings about it <laughs> <Yeah>. wins. <laughs> well, tell me a little bit about your cast. You are keeping it in the family for at least one of the characters. As Dee Dee, your daughter Ella's in the play. What were you looking for in choosing Ella, Sarah, Eric and Ryan? What were some of the key things you were after from them? In the character of Logan, which my daughter Ella plays, we were looking for somebody who um, had... You know, this is a, a redemption moment for this character. And so we were looking for somebody who cared very passionately about what she did, but had this huge sense of anxiety and weight. You know, she's got all these grants. She's trying to save her reputation. So we needed somebody who could not only be funny, but just accurately represent somebody who has all of that sitting on her shoulders. And Ella really did that from the first audition that she came to. So, you know, and then we hemmed and hawed because casting family is always tricky and you never know how people are going <laughs> to perceive that. But I think anybody who saw the, the audition knows she won fair and square. As far as Sarah, again, she had the part from the minute she opened her mouth just because she embodied it so perfectly. Jackson was our hardest character to cast because we only had one guy audition. <laughs> and the man who plays Caden, Ryan Mahana, he very much embodied the character of Caden immediately. He had the the um, wit that we needed, the stage presence, and also the anxiety <laughs> of that character <laughs> down pat. Um, Jackson was harder. And mm -hmm. when we finally found Eric Moore, who's playing Jackson, we breathed a huge sigh of relief because... He was perfect from day one. Yeah, we had a we did a a Zoom audition with him and Ella, so we could see how he was going to do and and you know like she said we were very tense and thirty seconds into that Zoom audition we're like oh thank goodness <laughs> he's wonderful he's <laughs> it's going to work yeah and he's relatively new to the scene he's done yeah. some smaller roles in some radio theater but this is his first major role in the Columbia community theater scene and, and it will not be his last no he's no. wonderful he's gonna be a commodity after this one i think it's a, a great place to start with this play yes <laughs> larissa fasthor says that at the very least she hopes that people go away and question what they read or read in their history books that they ask questions that she says she doesn't want to define what she wants audiences to be talking about but her gift is simply to make us talk and think and i wonder for you both, what were some of the moments of enlightenment and conversation that you had after reading the play? Oh, that's a really good question. I think we've had some interesting discussions as a cast. A lot of it is just, um, I mean, we're all pretty liberal-minded folks ourselves. It's been fun to poke fun at ourselves in that way, being white liberal people. So there's been a lot of discussion of that. There's been a lot of discussion of performative wokeness, which I think all of us can sometimes fall into and a deeper understanding of the things that have happened to the people who were here before us and what part our ancestors played in that. And yeah, I think it's it's been really enlightening for all of us. I mean, you have an understanding of it to a point, but Larissa does a really beautiful job of presenting it in a way that is 
amusing and entertaining and yet impactful. And full of satire. Yes. The Thanksgiving play written by Larissa Fasthorse and directed by my guests, Dee Dee Farris and Mark Baumgartner, opens at Talking Horse Productions on St. James Street in Columbia tomorrow evening for a two-weekend run. Friday through Sunday matinee this weekend and Thursday through Sunday matinee next weekend. More information is available at TalkingHorseProductions.org. And Dee Dee Farris and Mark Baumgartner, thanks for all your work putting this play on a Columbia stage and for making time to chat tonight. It's always delightful. Diana, thank you. Thank you so much. For the past eight years, the Sega Reeves, formerly Sega Browdis Gallery, has brought an incredible collection of artworks to Columbia as part of their annual Masters exhibit. The exhibits have given Mid-Missourians the fabulous opportunity to stand in front of works by Pablo Picasso, Marc Chagall, Salvador Dali, Leonor Finney, Robert Motherwell, Joseph Alba, and so many more, right here in our own town. Many of the past eight Masters exhibits have focused on the abstract and expressionist movements of the 20th century, works by artists who trace their origins back to the Bauhaus movement and the famous Black Mountain College in North Carolina, which was a huge influence on 20th century American art history. The exhibits have explored women of the abstract expressionist movement, post-war action painters, artists from the colour field movement, as well as exhibits that focused on specific artists such as Pablo Picasso, Jack Roth and John Little. And this week, the Masters exhibit returns to the Sega Reeves Gallery on Walnut Street in Columbia, this year focusing on a theme rather than an era, the theme of love. The works in the show span from 1926 through to the mid-1990s and explore human connections, intimacy, courtship and sex. Having spent many years exploring works from the realm of abstraction, the ninth annual Masters exhibit returns to more representational imagery and includes works by Andy Warhol, Marc Chagall, Salvador Dali and a local painter who has been a master in our community for 60 years and whose large estate of works is just now being made available. And I am delighted to welcome back to Speaking of the Arts, one of the art curators and the art historian behind the show, Hannah Reeves. Welcome back to the show, Hannah. Hello. Thank you so much. This year's show is quite a departure from the past few years of artist or era-focused works. Tell us how love came to be the theme. Well, we started out really thinking about the storytelling that happens in a lot of art, but especially in representational art that depicts figures, people, people interacting. And like you said in your intro, we've spent years talking about abstraction that has no pictures and trying to do some of the work, you know, some of the programming and educational work to help people to understand that a message can be conveyed even when there aren't any pictures. But in that way it kind of washes over you in the way that maybe instrumental music might and something different does happen when you associate pictures and words and we started with a couple of pieces that were actually illustrations of literary works 
And that led us to think about this overarching theme about human connection and then ultimately love, which just encompasses so many different and diverse ideas and can be approached and captured in so many different ways. We thought that it would be broad enough, but also very, very interesting to look at 20th century masters and how maybe they've captured this theme or spoken to it, how works that show people maybe sitting in a room together, people interacting with each other in a couple, maybe even a portrait or a self-portrait, portrait of a muse or a lover, um, how that could touch this theme and kind of how diverse and colorful and interesting we could make it if we made that the project. It is difficult for many people to understand abstract expressionism. So we're not really taught it in high school art programs, or at least I wasn't. So do you feel like in the past there's been a big educational component that doesn't need to be as strong this year? I do think it has been kind of a barrier at times. You know, we hear that that phrase that, as it turns out, traces back all the way to 1951, there was a publication in which someone said, my kid could have painted that. <laughs> um, so this is not this is not a new thing that people say about abstraction. When people see mark making that I think feels naive or that is pictureless, then they kind of have that reaction because sometimes it's hard to understand the skill that underlies the mm. decision to work in that way. You know, that an artist kind of goes through a process of learning how to, how to paint, to draw, to depict, and then diverges from it in an intentional way. So yeah, that just to say, we did feel like we wanted to do a lot of educational work to help understand the value of those artists and those pieces. Now, I don't think that there's a lack of a, a need to still kind of talk about the importance of 20th century masters when they're working representationally. Representational work happened through the post-war era that we've covered with abstraction too, all through the 20th century. I would say that the focus, if we're looking to maybe teach or kind of share something new with our community through this master's exhibit, it might have to go back to this idea of the underdogs of art history. Um, so this is something that goes back to the very first year of the master's exhibit. And at that point, we're talking about Rudolf Bauer, who was a contemporary of Kandinsky. And there's kind of this story where Kandinsky becomes wildly valuable and popular and famous. And Bauer is doing comparable work in a comparable way and kind of doesn't become mm. famous. And so why and what does that mean for his work now? So in that way, we talk about finding these underdogs because these are stories that haven't been as told, as repeated, as understood yet, even though there's a lot of merit there. And of course, a lot of times those artists are women, are people of color, or you know, there are reasons that have to do with discrimination, basically, that are why they're works haven't been amplified and haven't kind of come to fruition in terms of value yet. And sometimes it's weird flukes of history, like somebody had a fight with a curator or a gallerist <laughs> in 1935 or something, you know. Um, but we try to find those and, and find that there are some little gems kind of hidden in the art realm. And we want to pull those 
into the light. And then there's something new that we can share and that we can do and kind of add to the conversation when we do that. You mentioned that the show started with two series of works that have an illustrative background. And I wondered if you might talk a little bit about the Marc Chagall works and also a series of very interesting works you have by Leonor Feeney. Would you talk a little bit about those works? Yes, those are exactly the ones I meant. (laughs) Um, So the Chagall illustration is an original etching. It's the oldest piece in the exhibit. It's just this beautiful, dark, strange, very like dynamic illustration. It's one of the only pieces in the show that doesn't depict people. It's actually an interaction between animals. But in the, you know, the history of fables, they, of course, represent human moral or human morality. And this is an illustration that went into a publication of an adaptation of Aesop's fable, the moral of which is look before you leap. So that's generally the way that it's referred to, but tells the story of the interaction between these two animals and, you know, kind of leads you to the moral and is also just this like beautiful limited edition etching, just this piece of history that's really lovely. And Leonor Feeney, she is fascinating. Tell us about those works. Well, this is just such a wild story and like set of connections, I think. And this is a pretty, a pretty wild series. So Feeney was famous from a very young age as a painter. She was painting commissioned portraits by the time she was 20 in Paris. It really had launched her career just quite early, was very, very well known as a surrealist, even though she was a woman. And she did a number of really large and spectacular oil canvases all the way through the 1990s in this surrealist vein that was really just all her own style. In the, the I believe, starting in the 50s, maybe a little bit earlier, she began working with publishers to create limited edition suites of some watercolor and ink drawings that she had done. And so there are a number of these that accompany writings. So Leonor Fini, in addition to being a famed painter in Paris, was also very, very well known for extravagantly and elaborately costuming herself and others and appearing in costume at balls and appearing in costume at places that were not costume balls. All <laughs> supermarket. <laughs> yeah. um, she made feathered masks and capes. She constructed costumes, actually, for the ballet in Paris and for multiple theater productions. And so she was really a skilled costumer and designer. And she really made it part of this persona that the press loved. And it really made her this kind of, like, darling of society in this kind of strange, like, also raunchy way. (laughs) Sometimes not all the way clothed, but also costumed. So she was so well-known because of this public image that that is how a lot of the writers, the poets, novelists, and intellectuals of Paris, they would be aware of her, even if they hadn't met her at one of the parties, although many of them would have. And there was a writer who's actually the same age as Leonor Feeney, Pauline Rieg, who was an erotic novelist, who became aware of Feeney and especially of one particular costume piece that Feeney was famous for wearing in public, which was an owl mask, a feathered mask. There were multiple images in publications that were that were produced that, that show Feeney in this mask. And something about that intrigued Rieg. And she ended up writing a, 
an erotic novel with a character that involved these feathered costumes and actually explicitly involved the owl mask. And then it wasn't until later in 1962 that Feeney was asked to illustrate a version of this piece of writing. And so the suite that we have, that's a long-winded way of saying, the suite that we have, 12 images by Lunar Feeney that are all these like interactions and, and sometimes very kind of like erotic kind of entanglements. Um, these are illustrations of that novel. And she seems to bring herself back in as a character with some knowledge that maybe she is present in the, in the novel. And in fact, there's one piece that illustrates a character in elaborate costume corset, gown, well, skirt, <laughs> skirt half, and um, and the owl mask, the feathered owl mm. mask is part of the set of illustrations. They're just beautiful gestural figurative work. They are pretty risque at times, but they're also very subtle. There are washes of watercolor and splashes of ink. So it just really brings in her mastery of the figure and of costuming. They almost have a hint of feeling like fashion illustrations at times, but are really illustrating the ideas of these scenes of the novel. The largest collection of works in the exhibit are maybe somewhat unusually for the Masters exhibit from a local artist, Ben Cameron, who died in February last year after an almost 50-year teaching career during which he taught at Stevens MU and for 41 years at Columbia College. Tell us about your decision to include Ben's work in this show. Well, we were aware, of course, of Ben's work, having seen there was a nice retrospective at Columbia College. And I think when you are an artist and a, a gallerist in Columbia for any amount of time, you know, you you are aware of, of his work. He's been around for a long time. But there were pieces that had not come to light, that had not been shown for years, for decades even, that uh, Melissa Williams, Melissa Williams Fine Art, was instrumental in bringing out the rest of the estate, working with Brooke Cameron, his wife, and really helping to show this full gamut of his oeuvre. And when Joel and I were looking through them, there's like a particular vein of work. So we kept picking out these pieces that show these scenes that really just seem to tell a story, like something is happening here. Like, what are these people doing? They've all met at this place. There's some kind of gathering. There's something, you know, there's just all these wonderful hints at like dynamics and interactions and connections. And come to find out everything that we chose, with the exception of one piece that we added later, was from a 1966 exhibit of his. So they were actually like a very cohesive set of, of pieces. To us, they just brought so much like scale and color and texture and energy to the show. But most importantly, they just fit the theme so beautifully. They seem to be about this like human interaction dynamic and, and what happens in those kind of spaces between people in these social settings. What is your sense of how well-known Ben Cameron is beyond the Columbia or mid-Missouri market? I think that we are just in the beginning of doing the work of kind of getting his name out there. Something that I've noticed with lifelong academics is that during their careers, you know, I think that they're maintaining tenure. Their living doesn't come from selling works. You know, they're just maybe less 
drive and interest in being in galleries all over the place. And not to say that he didn't exhibit widely because he did, but most of his work stayed with him. You know, he sent it off for exhibit, came back into the estate and it's mostly intact. And so when that happens, it just means that there's work to be done to kind of help people understand how does this person fit into everything else that was happening? Like, let's go back in time a little bit and think about who else was painting, like who was becoming famous and why and where, but also like, how does this person's work fit the conversation of that era? And what does it mean to look at it now? And I I think it's really, really lovely and interesting work. And we're excited to be kind of at the front end of helping to get the word out about what he did. Well, take me behind the scenes of your master's exhibits. If I remember correctly, the first year of the exhibit, you worked with a single dealer from one of the coasts. But since then, you, as you've defined the various stories that you want to tell through the master's exhibit, you've had to search the country for the works that you need and work with multiple dealers. Talk to me about the complexities of how you put these shows together. Yeah, you know, I would say that there was a sea change for us the year that we did On Black Mountain, which actually wasn't a December master's exhibit. It was an April special exhibit, but it was the first time for one of those special exhibits that we thought we want to branch out in our sources and think about both what we can own and what we can bring from a dealer on consignment, which is what we had done in the past for the master's. But we want to do so based on what we're looking for, not what this one dealer might have to offer. But when we had a theme, it became about, okay, well, who has these artists and understands their roots and their connection to Black Mountain College? Okay, well, here are a 100 dealers across the country who have at least some artists who fits the bill. And so we're cold calling people and saying, like, you don't know me, but I'm doing this project. But it set the tone for a different kind of project where we say, okay, we trust our voices curatorially. We trust ourselves to bring to our market and our community something that is new and going to be of interest. And we want control over that. So we're going to set the theme, talk about what we want, and then figure out how we're going to get it. (laughs) So... So this one was was pretty challenging. We really had to go all over. I think we worked with more people than we ever have for an exhibit before. And we own a lot of the pieces and then, of course, bring in and fill out the exhibit. But there's really a wide array of sources this time. We reached out to a couple of new people. Um, we reached out to all the old people <laughs> um, and really made it about what fits the theme and what's going to fill out a really diverse and interesting show here. When I came in to see the show on Saturday, you and I were talking a little bit about what the artist's original intention is. So when an artist dies, a vast amount of work can come to light, works that have maybe sat in drawers or in attics and works that were possibly sketches. And I I wonder whether the artist ever really planned for the work to be put in a frame. Maybe there was a reason they left it in a drawer. How do you think about that idea of some of these works are unintentional masterpieces and whether it matters what the artist's original intention was for that work? Well, it's always tricky to talk about artists' intention because at least half of the equation is how we receive it. I think for our team, we kind of have a soft spot for works on paper 
And sometimes that can mean that you're looking at pieces that might be a sketchbook page. Sometimes they may be unsigned or they may be more informal. A lot of the major pieces in this show this time were signed, which is really, really nice. It's not always the case. But I think there's something that appeals and it's not always easy to explain, but I think something that jumps out is a sense of intimacy and vulnerability when you're looking at kind of a delicate sheet of paper, especially when it's coming from an artist like Louise Nevelson, for example, who's very, very well known for these extremely like substantial, physically hard relief sculptures that are in every major museum. And then we have these delicate kind of strange, vulnerable drawings of figures on paper. It's almost like you get to like see into their their soft side or like see into their sketchbook. It is, it's one of the most amazing things too, even with contemporary artists, when we get to do a studio visit and you're looking at a big oil painting, like for example, this happened at Mitra Mitchell's studio, looking at a huge oil painting and then she's like flipping through her sketchbook and you're seeing like inside her brain you know and here's the character and here's the sketch of the character and here's the scene and so there's just like this peek behind the curtain a little bit for a lot of these works on paper that's how I feel especially about the Nevelsons that are in this show so I'll be anxious to see if other people receive that sense of vulnerability and kind of tenderness, I think, with her figurative work. Well, that is certainly a huge amount to see. And I think it might be my favorite of the Masters exhibits to date. Oh, I'm happy to hear that. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> the annual Sega Reeves Masters exhibit opens tomorrow night as part of the North Village Arts District, first Friday, and will run through the end of December. Gallery hours are 11 to 6, Tuesday through Saturday. Hannah Reeves, I always love talking with you about the Masters exhibit. Thank you so much for once again bringing an incredible show to Columbia and for making time to chat today. Well, thank you so much. It's been my pleasure. I don't fully remember what I was watching in 1989, but it was not a comedy drama set in Louisiana about a group of Southern American women who were delicate as magnolias, but as tough as steel. And somehow in the intervening 30 plus years since the film came out, I have just never managed to be in the same room with it. In fact, it wasn't until about three years ago when my pal and one of my guests this evening, Monica Palmer, asked me to go with her to a production of Steel Magnolias by the Little Theatre of Jefferson City that I finally got to know the six now iconic women in the play who come together each week at Truvia's Beauty Salon to gossip, banter and bond. The play Steel Magnolias was not originally written as a comedy, but rather as a tragedy. The playwright Robert Harling says it was only when the audiences arrived and responded to the way the women talked that he realised he'd written a comedy drama that was, quote, funny until it's not. The play opened off-Broadway in 1987 and ran for just over three years, with the playwright adapting it into the 1989 movie with the all-star cast of Julia Roberts, Sally Ann Fields, Dolly Parton, Olympia Dukakis, Shirley MacLaine and Daryl Hannah playing the six women. 
It is definitely a play that goes for the heart, although apparently I don't have one as I felt no <laughs> compunction to cry as Monica Palmer sat next to me in Jefferson City sobbing into her hanky. But this week, Steel Magnolias opens at Columbia Entertainment Company for a three weekend run. And this time, Monica is determined that I will cry and she is in fact in charge of making me do so as she will be playing Malin Eatonton along with Ginger Corley, who with teased hair and a heart of gold, will be playing salon owner Truvy Jones. Monica and Ginger, how lovely to have you back on Speaking of the Arts. Thanks for having us. Woohoo! <laughs> so Monica, after my Tin Man response to the little theatre production, do I get extra points if I sob loud enough for you to hear or if I remain stoically dry-eyed? <laughs> I don't think we can be friends anymore if you're stoically dry-eyed. I'll just be honest. But, uh, but you you get all the points in the world, even if you just tear up a little. That's all I want. I just because I know you have a hard heart and you're cold and you know. know unfeeling. So even if you just fake it a little and like get some eye drops, drop them in before I see you, <laughs> and then just pretend that would be fine for me. Yeah, I cry in a really <laughs> ugly way. So I mean, you will know if I just look normal with some wet on my cheek, you'll know I haven't been crying. If I'm all puffy and red, you'll know it works. Okay, well that's my goal. Puffy and red. That's my goal. We'll be watching. <laughs> And listening, and listening. I thought we would start with a little quiz because Ginger's been on the show twice and I always start with a quiz when it's Ginger. So um, here we go. I think you're going to get the first one of these, a little Steel Magnolias quiz. I better. I need that false sense of security right now. <laughs> okay, easy one to start. The play is based on a true story. Who is the play actually about? Wasn't it his daughter? I know. Oh, you do? Mm -mm. Answer, no, answer, it's his sister. Answer. Sister, that's it's a sister. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it is indeed Robert Harling's sister Susan, who died in 1985 at the age of 33. So it is really, the whole story is, is true. His mother and his sister are really real characters in the play. I think you get that too. I think you get that sense when you watch these characters, I mean, when they're performed right, which hopefully we'll be doing. But I think you get the sense that these are real people. They talk like real people. So, yeah. Okay, this one is about the movie. In the movie, version, Shelby is played by Julia Roberts, but she was not the actress who was originally cast. Who was originally cast and why did she have to turn it down? Oh my gosh, we talked about this at the very <laughs> beginning. Do you remember, Monica? I don't. No, I don't oh think I was goodness. there for that conversation. So Can we, can we phone a friend? <laughs> <laughs> oh um, man, I am like kicking myself in the heels right now because we talked about it. Oh, it was Winona Ryder. I just Googled it. Was yeah. it? Oh, my God. I was just, oh, you did? I Googled it. I'm cheating. Literally, I was just about to well, say that. Well, it wasn't. It wasn't. They considered oh. Winona Ryder, but then decided she was too young. The person who was actually cast was Meg Ryan, oh. but she pulled out because she got cast in When Harry Met Sally. Really? Oh, wow. Yeah. There you go. Okay. Wow. I don't think I could have believed Meg Ryan as Sally Field's daughter. I don't think that would have been. Mm. Does Meg Ryan ever do an accent? I can't imagine her doing an accent. Mm. Don't know. Well, I mean, some people would argue that Julie Roberts didn't really do an accent either. So, you know, it just depends on True. how catty the friend you're sitting next to is, you know. But she's also adorable. Yes, absolutely. So you don't need to have a Southern accent when you're Julie Roberts. It's true. Final question. The playwright, Robert Harling, had a tiny role in the film. What character did he play? Oh. Rhett. <laughs> the, the dog. dog. The dog. <laughs> 
He was the mailman uh-uh. at the carnival. He was the minister. Ah, oh. okay. No idea about that one. Okay. All right. Okay, I think I win all of those. So the, Congratulations. Okay. I knew the first one. Thank you very much. <laughs> I knew that was an easy one to start with. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so Ginger, this is a play where all six of the characters stay on stage for most of the play and everybody is there in support of each other. It's an ensemble of equals. Every character has great lines. Every character has a super strong personality. Is that unusual? Have you been to the South? (laughs) (laughs) Um, It's very, uh, it's very typical, very, very typical. And I think Southern women are a breed of their own. I am lucky enough to be called one. I was raised in Louisiana and then uh, moved to Texas when I was about 10. And it's very common. You're everyone that you know, every woman that's in your life is a very strong force to be reckoned with. And that is the charm of Southern bells because we can wear a dress and we can wear the pants too. And that's just the way that it is. So um, I love that everyone has like their own personality, but the lines have that Southern flair of just being really quippy and bitey and sarcastic. And I just love it. It's delicious. <laughs> so as a Southern woman, what what is it specifically that really rings true? Is it the dialogue? Is that what makes them seem so real to life? I think it's um, twofold. I think the dialogue definitely helps. There are different adages that we have in the South, just like with every culture in every part of the world. Things that we say, like, women don't sweat, we glisten, or this dandelion is a Wilton, (laughs) or all those little one-liners. So those definitely help the believability. And then the other part of it is, I think, just there's a reality of life that is very simple and it isn't glamorized. And I think that is one of the really strong undercurrents of the believability of the story because it's not trying to be anything pretentious. It's not this lush, lavish lifestyle that they're trying to highlight. It is just a normal lady working in her garage, trying to make some money and meeting some friends along the way. And they're all just being vulnerable and open with what they're going through in life. And it's beautiful. On that note, Monica, there is an author's note on the cast of characters page of the play, which states the women in this play are witty, intelligent and above all real characters. They in no way, shape or form are meant to be portrayed as cartoons or caricatures. And I can see that in the hands of an inexperienced director, that could be a challenge. And for you as a seasoned actor, and I think someone who has maybe been in this play before and certainly someone who has seen it multiple times what is the hardest thing to get right in this play the hardest thing is just the relationship I think you know the relationship between these women because they they say things on the surface that would be like wow I cannot believe you just said that to somebody you supposedly love Mm -hmm. but then the next (laughs) second they're hugging and it's just like that's real you know that's that's how people are sometimes you know but it's 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 because you love each other that you can say the things that you say and uh, just that reality of finding that um, the heart of the relationships I think is the key for me personally and yeah I have played this role that I'm playing I've played it before I played Malin when I was in my 20s I was actually two years younger than the girl playing my daughter, which was interesting. But I I, um, I was drawing very heavily on my mom's experience. Um, we lost my sister when my sister was 18 years old. And so I was drawing very heavily of my mom's experience of that and her grief. And that was very motivational for the role, but I didn't understand 
the most important piece of it for this character is I, I wasn't a mom yet, and I didn't understand a lot of what is happening in Malin as, as far as this character and how she's dealing with the things that come at her in this play. I didn't understand that because I hadn't had that journey yet. So I'm really looking forward to getting another shot at this role because I feel like I understand her in a way that I didn't before. So I think understanding these characters, understanding their relationships to each other and the depth there, I think that's the key to playing it real and not making it a caricature. Ginger Truvy is maybe the character who lends herself to stereotyping the most. She can be Barbie doll-esque or bouffant and mascara and artifice, but I, I don't think that distortion was the author's original intent. It's maybe how she's been played over the years. Tell me about your Truvy. Well, it's definitely easy to try to duplicate what Dolly Parton did in her role in the film, which I think is where a lot of that stereotype comes from because she mm. very much made it such an iconic role. So I wanted to do something different from the very beginning. I do not look like Dolly Parton, so that helps, <laughs> unfortunately. <laughs> so I wanted to have more of an edge with her. Like there's a gentleness about her. She very much is like the heartbeat, I think, in a lot of ways, keeping everyone together and making sure all of those relationships are, um, that they don't escalate past the point of like offense, if that makes sense. But there's a lot of things that she's going through as a character in her own personal growth that I wanted to have the girl that likes to play with Barbies, but also will go outside and build a fort, <laughs> if that makes sense. <laughs> so I wanted to have some of that softness with the fashion and being up on all of that stuff and very into how she looks and her appearance and how she takes care of herself. But then also some little spikes here and there to represent her growth and what she's going through and the hardships that she's had to deal with over the years. I think when they were casting for the movie, everybody wanted to be Weezer, the kind of the <laughs> cranky, rich old lady. Yes. <laughs> It's a great role. I'm looking forward to playing it in about it 10, 15 years. So it's on my list now. Yeah. I wanted to play it this time. I was so sad. <laughs> that was my question. Did you get the roles you wanted? Do you mind if I go first, Monica? Go ahead. Yeah. So it was really interesting for me because it had been a long time since I had watched the movie, probably like 10, 15 years, and I had never read the stage play. Don't tell anyone, uh, actually. <laughs> Dang it. I, I outed myself. You just told everybody. <laughs> <laughs> I know, right? So when I, I watched it before auditions and I was kind of re-familiarizing myself with the characters and the storyline and everything. And for me, I love those quippy one-liners. So originally I was like, well, I have to be Weezer because that would just be hilarious because she has <laughs> the most outrageous lines. And the older that you get in your acting career, the less and less you ever want to play the ingenue. You want to play <laughs> that like gritty side character. And um, so I was really excited about that. But then when I read some of the excerpts at auditions, I was like, you know what? Clary has the best lines in the whole show. <laughs> and I was like, man, okay. So I think I'm a little too old for, for Weezer, but maybe if I can do Weezer, definitely not going to get Clary because Carrie, uh, who auditioned for the role, she is brilliant at Clary. Mm -hmm. So it was like, well, Truby would be the only other one that I would really want. 
So, so yes, and a long, a very long-winded answer, yes. <laughs> and I, I know, Monica, you wanted to be Malin. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. The greatest part about this show for an actress is there's always a role you can play. From, you know, your 20s to your 70s or beyond, you're going to have a role that you could play in this show. So once you age out of one, you've aged into the next. <laughs> so it's kind of a beautiful thing. So, yeah, so Malin was definitely the role I was after because of just that personal motivation to to do something better than I did before now that I have the the information that I have now. And so it's kind of like I, I realized all the things I did wrong the first time and I want to redeem myself to myself. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Ginger, last time you were on the show, we were talking about no sex, please, we're British. And the cast were all doing English accents. And so my ears were extra attuned. <laughs> and this time you are firmly in your home territory as the play is set in Louisiana. You are from there. So it's your ears that are attuned to the shape and pitch of each syllable. Talk to me about getting the accents right. Not for you, but for everybody else. Like, were you part of the tutorial process for that? You know, I wish that I would have had a little bit more opportunity to do that. But with that said, there's a threshold of how far into it do you want to go? I think with any accent, like uh, the last show we were doing English accents. So there's different regions and different dialects. You could do the same with Louisiana. Thankfully, this show takes place in northern Louisiana, which I am a raging Cajun from the south. There's actually (laughs) a map of the territory where you can claim to be a Cajun. And that is where I'm from. But it was nice for all of us to fall into it together as a group rather than having to attain a certain dialect that was as rigorous as like a British accent, for example. So we all just kind of felt each other out on it and we listened to each other and we're like, okay. And then we just thickened it up as it went. And I think it's turned out beautiful without really forcing a hand on it. Yeah, we fell into it together. Sometimes we fall out of it together. You know, it's just how it <laughs> oh, is. Oh, God. We, <laughs> we, you know, it, somebody, I think it was Ed Hansen who told me once, like, accents, you just need to nail the first 10 or 15 minutes and then people will forget that you were supposed to have an accent. <laughs> but really, the dialogue is so musical. The way it's written, yeah. it almost lends itself to being spoken with an accent because it just it's just beautiful language and some of these lines you couldn't read it without an accent you just couldn't yes I agree so give us a line Monica in your best <laughs> Malin Eatonton southern accent her colors are pink and pink her colors are pink and pink yeah because her colors this is the big thing about Shelby her signature color is pink so her wedding colors are blush and bashful which I think is absolutely ridiculous and so I snap back her colors are pink and pink And then I say to Clary, I ask you, how precious is this wedding going to (laughs) get? Ginger, in the original New York production, your character was played by Margot Martindale, who said she tried to quit several times when the actresses would complain that she was doing their hair wrong and she would have to remind (laughs) them that she was just playing a hairdresser, that she wasn't an actual hairdresser. So I wonder how precious your actresses have been as you're putting them in rollers. (laughs) Well, I think you should ask Monica, because I'm pretty sure I have claimed a few strands of her hair in this process. (laughs) 
So it's been interesting because we we did have uh, a hairstylist that has come in to help teach us and educate us on the wigs and just basic maneuvers and things like that. But that's happened recently. So it was just being a girl. It was like being, you know, uh, at a sleepover and you're all just <laughs> playing around and you're learning lines at the same time and you accidentally pull hair and a huge chunk <laughs> falls to the floor and you just keep going. It's fine. So. I hope nobody's head sore in the cast. Not yet. <laughs> just talk to me Sunday. Like <laughs> Exactly. I'd be terrible. I'm terribly head sore. If you pull my hair, I'd be kind of like ah! <laughs> I think what's so funny about dealing with the mechanics of that, it's it's very, very challenging. I don't think I've ever been in a show where I've had to do something so meticulously for a long period of time in a show. So for me it's really stretched that in me. Because it's difficult to, okay, I've got to time this out to where I've got to hit this point in the hair by this cue, and then this one by this cue, and then this one by this cue, over the span of a 35-page first scene. Not kidding. And so it's very, very challenging on that aspect, but it's been really fun, too, because learning how to do the hair and timing it and then trying to remember all your lines and your cues at the same time. Sometimes you just go brain dead and that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, Columbia Entertainment Company's production of Steel Magnolias opens tonight and runs for three weekends, closing with a matinee performance on Sunday, December the 18th. You can find out more at cectheatre.org and Monica Palmer and Ginger Corley. I can't wait to see you in action. Thank you so much for making time to chat this evening and, and I will cry. <laughs> you better. Please do. <laughs> and that is it for another week. All the Speaking of the Arts episodes are available as podcasts, which you can hear at speakingofthearts.transistor.fm. And of course, you can also connect through the KOPN website at kopn.org. to my guests this evening theatre directors Dee Dee Farris and Mark Baumgartner art curator and historian Hannah Reeves and actors Monica Palmer and Ginger Corley thanks as always to guitarist Yasmin Williams whose song Restless Heart opens and closes the show you can hear more of her music on Spotify and on her website at yasminwilliamsmusic.com Finally, thank you so much for listening. This has been Speaking of the Arts, and my name is Diana Moxham. I'll be back next week with more peeks behind the arts curtain. Until then, stay arty, Missouri! Missouri!